Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of our podcast, The Gary Pages on Audio. This is now the Part 3 episode of Gary's Rank Reviews on Star Trek, the original series. Let's go through an introduction first. The blog that this is based on has a Part 1 and a Part 2 that you can see online as well as part three, which is also linked. Um, Part one, of course, introduces how I revived a 25-year-old series of reviews that I wrote, updating them for a contemporary audience and to reflect changes in my worldview and opinions since then. And if you have not already done so, I invite you to read part one and part two. Part two featured four episodes from season one, three episodes from season two, and three episodes from season three. This part flips the numbers from seasons one and two, and thus including three episodes from season one, four episodes from season two, and three episodes from season three. Television was very different in the 1960s compared to today. Of Star Trek's three seasons, the shortest of them was 24 episodes. Three more than typical TV shows on broadcast television today, and between 11 and 14 more episodes per season than shows on cable networks and streaming services. Of course, back then, the schedule designed such that any given episode aired exactly twice, once during the regular schedule between early fall and late spring, and then a second time, barring summers and summer-only shows, in the summer months. The shift to shorter seasons started when cable stations like USA, TBS, TNT, etc. rose in popularity in the 1990s. Most new original shows on those networks aired 13-episode seasons. I used to think that this was odd until I realized that this is exactly a quarter of a year. That way... Episodes could air three or four or more times throughout the year. Imagine if the original Star Trek was done that way. There would have been a more interesting set of season premieres and finales, perhaps, than what we already got. Now, already in this countdown, we have seen the season one finale, Operation Annihilate, season two finale, Assignment Earth, season three premiere, Spock's Brain, and Season 3 and Series finale, Turnabout Intruder. Of the two that remain, of premieres and finales, one of them is a top ten episode. We won't see the other in this part, but it isn't far away either. But the lack of great episodes used as premieres and finales reflects some of the difference between the 1960s and now, as, for instance, my ranked list of episodes of the show Lost, which includes six season premieres and six season finales, has only one episode that wasn't either a season premiere or finale in the top ten. For the first time, this part contains no episodes that were either season premieres or finales. And so we go on to the episodes ranked number 60 through number 51. Number 60, The Return of the Archons. Season 1, Episode 21, preceded by Court Martial and followed by Space Seed. 
Star Trek did quite a few episodes in which the Prime Directive was its focus. There were also several episodes in which one of the episode's major plot points was the destruction of a computer, usually by Captain Kirk. All of the episodes in which a computer is driven insane by logic rank higher than this one. Then, when it was combined with another bad example of a violation of the Prime Directive, a la the Apple, uh, it took an otherwise interesting story and brought it down to the lower one-third of the rankings. The Return of the Archons is an example of both issues, handling one of them much better than the Apple, but not handling the other as well as other Computers Are Bad episodes. <clears throat> this episode marked an example in much the same vein as The Lights of Zatar, in which we have a good story, albeit not great, told poorly. The idea of returning to a planet visited by a long-lost starship, in this case the USS Archon, is quite sound, and most of the story is built around finding out exactly what happened to that ship and its crew. But it takes a long while to get anything resembling an explanation until the character Rieger reveals that their dictator, quote, pulled the Archons down from the skies, unquote. Along the way, we get a few interesting plot points, like the festival and the identity of their leader, Landru, and the concepts of the body, uh, etc. But a horribly acted cold open, one of the very few points in all of Star Trek in which I criticized George Takei's performance, but the real problem was the portrayal of Lieutenant O'Neill by Sean Morgan. The first real problem comes in just after the reveal of the Archon's fate. Landrew tried to do the same thing to the Enterprise, but instead of telling Scotty to just warp out of there, as Kirk had done on several other occasions, he tells Scotty to keep, it, keep at it while he attempts to get the heat beams turned off. Once it's revealed that Landrew is just a computer projection, the quest becomes one of just destroying that computer. The excuse Kirk and Spock use in justifying the computer's destruction by getting it to destroy itself through logic is lame, but it is at least not as bad as in the Apple. It's still a violation of the Prime Directive, though, and Kirk would repeat this same violation in several future episodes. It ranks higher than the Apple, simply because the underlying story is better, but it remains in the lower one-third of this list for the same reason as the Apple's placement in the bottom eight. Number 59, Return to Tomorrow, Season 2, Episode 20, preceded by A Private Little War, followed by Patterns of Force. Diana Moldauer, who would later portray Dr. Catherine Pulaski in Star Trek The Next Generation, makes the first of two appearances here in the original series this time as Dr. Anne Mulhall, who becomes the host body for a non-corporeal alien named Thalassa. Though I was never a fan of her Pulaski character, it can be argued that her performance in The Next Generation was much better than her performance here. But her performance in a later and higher ranking episode of this original series was even better than that. So the age difference, she was uh, 50 in Next Generation and 30 or 31, in the original series, can't be used as a reason. My take is that the reason for her differences in performance come down to simple writing. The characters of Sargon, voiced by James Doohan, Henoch, 
and Thalassa were just not that particularly compelling. The idea of them being non-corporeal made them a bit more interesting, and we got a little bit of their backstory from when they did have bodies, but ultimately the story of Sargon calling on three Enterprise crew members, Kirk, Spock, and Dr. Mulhall, to assist in the building of android bodies for them was just a tiny bit boring. However, the characters and story were at least reasonably well acted, even Thalassa, and their motives in the attempted murder of Sargon while he was in Kirk's body at least made sense. It was the execution of that main plot, though, that brought down this episode to its relatively low position. The Spock's dead, oh wait, no he isn't trope rears its ugly head here, just as the McCoy's dead example from the episode Shore Leave, and it's another drag on the episode. The resolution of the main plot borders on Doex Machina, but ultimately works and gives us a bit of an entertaining ending. Number 58, A Private Little War, Season 2, Episode 19, preceded by the Immunity Syndrome, followed by Return to Tomorrow. Don Engels, writing here under the pseudonym Judd Crucis, is responsible for two episodes of the original Star Trek series, The Alternative Factor, which ranks as the second worst episode of the series, and this one where he chose to write under a pen name. There is no information as to why he chose to do it this way when penning his second Star Trek episode, but clearly this one is the better effort, even if it still falls into the lower one-third of the ranking. Part of the reason is the outdated basis for the story, not the Cold War this time, but the real war that was being fought in Vietnam as this episode was created. It was clearly an allegory for the Vietnam War in its overall structure and attitude about the war being presented, and in some ways as a way of showing the futility war, futility of war as well as showing the consequences of getting involved in someone else's war, it's a good story. But like a lot of episodes in this part of the ranking, it's a good story told poorly. The first problem was with the detection of the Klingons in orbit around the same planet. Beaming Kirk and McCoy back down to a planet now proven to be dangerous after Kirk was, or after Spock was shot, and then leaving orbit so that they couldn't return in case of another emergency was ludicrously stupid. Naturally, Kirk experiences a medical emergency of his own, being bit by a Mugato, uh, which leads to the second problem, the borderline fantasy nature of his cure by Nona, wife of Tyree, whom Kirk happens to know personally. But this leads to the third problem, the rather obvious violation of the Prime Directive, as Kirk helps arm Tyree's side in a war against the villagers. Admittedly, this is done in response to the Klingons' interference in arming the villagers in the first place, but that doesn't really change the fact that the Prime Directive was violated here. Of course, Kirk and the Enterprise crew were left with no good choices once they discovered the truth. The situation was all too much like that of the U.S. in the early days of the Vietnam War, particularly before we actually started sending troops in. With a good story foundation like that, it's sad that they had to make the errors mentioned earlier. This episode had the potential to rank much higher than this. Number 57 the Gamesters of Triskelion. 
Season 2, Episode 16, preceded by The Trouble with Tribbles, followed by a piece of the action. Captain Kirk and others from the Enterprise were forced into what amounted to gladiator combat in another episode already reviewed, Bread and Circuses. In this episode, which actually comes before Bread and Circuses, Kirk, Uhura, and Chekhov are abducted and forced to engage in these games for the amusement of three disembodied brains who gamble on the outcomes. The more interesting motivation of the captors in comparison to other episodes of this kind make this episode rank higher than most others, but its position that's still in the lower one-third of the list is due to a number of foolish errors. The first error is in simply not giving any real explanation as to why Kirk, Uhura, and Chekhov were chosen from such a great distance and were told by Master Thrall that it was not a mistake. The second was in Captain's log entry that appears to have been made while they were in the process of being abducted. It's followed by another supplemental log a little later as Kirk has to fend off an attack in a training exercise. These errors are serious, and they detract from an otherwise interesting story with some great action sequences. Some other reviewers have argued that Kirk's conversation with Shana constitutes a violation of the Prime Directive itself, but I disagree. The society on Treskillian is obviously already quite advanced, though it is structured in a case system where the thralls must perform for the amusement of the, of the providers. The sequences aboard the Enterprise, as Spock and the crew search for Kirk, Uhura, and Chekhov, are amusing, but pat. Once Kirk sees that they're dealing with a life form and not a computer to be driven crazy by logic, he figures out the solution. Play their game and place a bet of his own. It works and he wins the bet. It ends up as a far better solution than any potential prime directive violation. Now if we would just have been shown a better explanation for why they chose Kirk, Uhura, and Chekhov, and why they were chosen at that place and time, well... Number 56, The Cloud Minders, Season 3, Episode 21, preceded by The Way to Eden, followed by The Savage Curtain. As we move further up the ranked list, even though we're still in the lower one-third of the rankings, the reviews tend to get a little bit longer. This is because the episodes become at least a bit more interesting. In the very interesting twist we have here, Back-to-back episodes by the same writer, Margaret Arman, who also penned The Gamesters of Triskelion and The Paradise Syndrome, the latter being the best of the three. The similarities with Gamesters becomes apparent early on, and raise the episode above other episodes with similar themes. However, errors in the way this story is told drag it down to this lower one-third of the rank. The most obvious similarity with the Gamesters episode is the planet with a caste system. In this case, the miners of the mineral Xenite dwell in the caves below and are called troglites, short for troglodytes, a name for a type of caveman, while the upper class lives in the cloud city Stratos, viewing the troglites below as something of a subhuman race. Kirk finds himself stuck between the troglites' political demands and the city dwellers' oppression of them. No gladiator games this time, but Kirk does end up mining some Xenite by hand. 
But with the discovery of a gas byproduct of xenite that causes aggression and instability, Kirk finds a way, despite the troglite Vanna's treachery, to turn the tables on them, much the same as he did with the providers on Triskelion. And both obtained the needed xenite and put the Ardenans on a path to fixing their political system. It sounds like a really good story, and it is, except in the way it was executed again. Unlike much of the dialogue in Margaret Armand's other two episodes, the lines spoken by both the regular and guest cast seemed forced, wooden, and with the wrong inflection. Some of this may have just been the actors, but actors can only do so much with the lines they're given, and most of it's fine, especially Vanna, but a lot of the others, Plasas particularly, um, are have a problem. The worst example was part of the B-plot, a conversation between Spock and the high advisor's daughter, Droxine. It was hard to tell whether Droxine was trying to seduce Spock or if what she said constituted hero worship. Either way, it was quite a bit of a distraction, detraction from an otherwise pretty good late entry in Star Trek's third season. Number 55, All Our Yesterdays, Season 3, Episode 23, preceded by the Savage Curtain, followed by Turnabout Intruder. You'll notice both this episode's predecessor and successor, chronologically, have already been reviewed, ranking lower than this. All Our Yesterdays is the highest-ranking episode of the last three, actually last four, since the fourth-to-last episode is the just-reviewed-the-cloud-minders, but still falls into the bottom third, albeit barely, of the ranking. It is a time-travel episode with an interesting twist, but falls in the end of the position of the next-to-lowest time-travel episode in the original Star Trek series. See number 65, Assignment Earth. As I mentioned before, I love time-travel stories. Each of the Star Trek TV series has a time-travel episode in its top three in my rankings, and two of the series have a time-travel episode in the number one position. It's an amazingly rich sci-fi concept, even though it stretches the limitations of the willing suspension of disbelief to very nearly its breaking point. Some time-travel episodes handle the concept extremely well, while others don't. Here, the time travel appears in the form of a library, of sorts, on a doomed planet about to face a supernova sun. The solution appears to be the planet's inhabitants escape to its past. By itself, this concept works. But then the writer added the notion of preparing the people that go through the portal. The idea has a logic to it, but it conflicts with the multiverse type of story being told, where the passage of time is parallel in each different timeline. There would be no need to prepare people to stay in the past and not return when the planet, the library, and everything would be destroyed a short time after they each arrived in their preferred time period. There was also no mention of the consequences of the various time paradoxes that would be presented here, such as the grandparent paradox, where doing something that prevents your parents from being born erases your own future, etc. In this regard, comedic time travel stories like Back to the Future actually make more sense than static timeline stories like this one. It's not a bad story, per se, 
but all but one other time travel story ever done in the original Star Trek series did it better than this. Number 54, Dagger of the Mind. Season 1, Episode 9, preceded by Miri, followed by the Corbomite Maneuver. In another interesting coincidence, and even though we go from nearly the end of the series run back to near the beginning, these back-to-back episodes in the rank share an unusual commonality in their titles. Both are quotes of soliloquies from Shakespeare's Macbeth. But outside of the link in their titles, these two episodes couldn't be more different. Defining this episode is a little bit difficult, just because of the mix of things done brilliantly right and things done curiously wrong. Let's start with the negatives first. Like a lot of early Star Trek, this suffers from some growing pains. We get our first ever look at the Vulcan mind meld, which is a good thing, but the initial performance of it badly overemphasizes the mystical nature of the act, forcing the character of Spock to act more like a witch doctor than a science officer trying to probe a man's tortured mind. We are shown a colony where the criminally insane are sent for isolation and rehabilitation, essentially a galactic psychiatric hospital, like the kind that barely exists anymore today, much less 200 years into the future. When writing this kind of story, projecting what we think things will be like in the future, it's important to think through the improvements in technology and practices that may happen in the time period, not simply a a modest adaptation of the kinds of things that were around in the 1960s on Earth. Other negatives include the sexual tension between Dr. Helen Noel and Captain Kirk. Not that there shouldn't have been any, but that it was overdone, badly overdone. But some of the episode's many positives actually stem from this. Few episodes, especially this early, can boast acting performances, especially from the guest cast, that are this good. The actors behind every character put in tremendous performances off of a good, albeit not great, script. The best of them was Morgan Woodward as Simon Van Gelder, the man whose tortured mind led the Enterprise crew to initially believe that he was an inmate, but instead was Dr. Adams' assistant. The plot of the episode flows quite naturally from the initial mystery to the closing action and suspense sequences. A rewrite would make this a top 10 episode if a few details were handled differently. Number 53, Miri. Season 1, Episode 8. Preceded by What Are Little Girls Made Of? Followed by Dagger of the Mind. The lower-ranked and the child... Children Shall Lead, number 68, from part two, from the third season, was rather clearly an attempt at repeating the same style of Children of the Corn episode as this early first season episode. Miri features a larger group of child actors who put in far better performances here than the children in the later episode. This may have been due in part to the fact that several of them were actually the sons and daughters of regular cast members, including William Shatner's two daughters. Uh, And uh, good performances aside, the story itself is a fairly good one, but is marred by a couple of errors, one involving Spock and the other Dr. McCoy. The one involving Spock is a colossally bad snippet of dialogue, 
that I'm frankly surprised was kept in the episode. When Dr. McCoy finishes the first trial batch of the vaccine against the disease that makes the central plot point of the episode, the issue becomes the dosage. Without their communicators, which were stolen by the children, they have no connection to the ship's computers, and without that calculation by those computers, Spock describes McCoy's trial batch as, quote, a beaker full of death, unquote. This metaphor is horribly out of character for Spock, an emotional reaction to an admittedly desperate situation at a time when the character of Spock was still being developed, but no one called him on it. It was left in, as though this statement was perfectly within character. What followed was the other error. McCoy then injects himself with a dose that can only be thought of as a guess, but it was also a potentially pointless sacrifice. McCoy had truly no idea if his self-dose would succeed or fail, but as realistically the only person capable of producing this vaccine, he couldn't really afford to fail a test such as this. If it was a horribly dumb decision on his part, even if their own deaths were assured within days without the vaccine. Sometimes a sacrifice is the most appropriate action one could take, but in this example there were other, better ways of going about this. On top of that is the episode's only real plot hole. Vaccines don't do any good for someone already infected with a disease. Vaccines are a preventative measure to keep you from becoming infected or at least reduce your odds. It was established early on that all of the children on the planet, as well as all of the Enterprise crew members, were already infected. A vaccine would do no good. Now, if they had called McCoy's cure an antiviral, or some other such name, it would have made much more sense. Errors aside, the story is a good, albeit not great, example of using children as antagonists in a science fiction story. Number 52 whom gods destroy. Season 3, episode 14. Preceded by Elan of Troyes, followed by Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. This episode's close proximity to Dagger of the Mind, only two episodes apart in rank, reflects the similarity in setting and subject matter, a mental hospital of the future, this one being a bit more of an asylum but the underlying plots couldn't be more different. Where Dagger's danger comes from a machine in the hands of a deranged doctor, this episode is much more a classic retelling of the inmates taking over the asylum type story. It's an episode with a better plot overall, but has a few bad plot holes that drag things down quite a lot. The biggest plot hole is the idea that a human could, quote, learn shape-shifting abilities, unquote, as opposed to an alien life form being born with them. Former Starfleet Captain Garth, institutionalized on Elba II after becoming insane following an injury, is the mad leader of the inmates, carrying out his desire to become the king of the universe, primarily by deceiving the visiting Enterprise crew, by appearing to be the asylum's director, Donald Corey. He later assumes the appearance, in all respects, of Kirk and later Spock, in an effort to get the countersign needed to be beamed aboard the Enterprise, unsuccessfully each time. 
Even the updated special effects of the remastered episodes couldn't improve the effect of the shape-shifting, and thus it just wasn't believable. But that's the other main problem. The use of a passcode to determine their real identities, Kirk's and Spock's, when they would return to the Enterprise. It's not that it wasn't well done. On the contrary, it was rather clever with the chess moves and such. But that it came out of absolutely nowhere. They never used the technique before and would never use it after this. And they never specified the reasons for using the passcode in this case. Were they anticipating the very type of trouble that they encountered? They were royally fooled by Garth when they first arrived, but they couldn't have raised suspicions before their arrival. The Enterprise had, had been in situations where they should have used a similar passcode system in the past, but never did. That makes this whole thing a plot hole, even if it enhanced the main plot of the episode. There were, of course, better ways of handling that, such as Scotty noticing an anomaly before preparing to beam up the Kirk-disguised Garth and explain that the transporter is down while they try to figure out why the transporter signal doesn't match what they expected, something like that. In the end, it's a simple but good story of trying to work around a madman's deceit, and the Solomon's choice that Spock had to make was a good climax. Kirk even mentions Solomon in the closing dialogue. They just should have told the story a bit differently. And finally, number 51, Obsession. Season 2, Episode 13, Preceded by the Deadly Years, followed by Wolf in the Fold. This episode is a textbook example of contrasting two different retellings of the same story. This episode, in the much higher-ranked The Doomsday Machine, 